As Pastor Ken uh, said it in a nice way, let me flip it and just say the reality. I've been like that pest that just won't go away. I just keep coming back um, from Texas, my home, which, uh, which is actually my home is here now. But being here and being at Mountain View has been a privilege of my life. When I first came here in 2012, I was told I was going to be working with Pastor Ken with the high school ministry that was called ISO at the time. And I'll tell you this, my life has never been the same since. And so if I could pick anywhere where I would rather be, it would not be anywhere else than right here than with you guys this morning. And you guys have an amazing pastor. And I'm so excited to see what God's doing uh, through his church here at Mountain View Sunnyside, um, through all of you guys. So we're looking at an amazing passage uh, this morning. And I want to begin by telling you a story about my friend, Dirk. And now by Dirk, I'm not talking about my well, my redneck cousin from back home yonder in Texas. I'm talking about Dirk Willems. Dirk Willems, who was a 16th century Anabaptist. And he lived in a period of time that was known as the Protestant Reformation, where the state church existed. Now, if you were a part of the state church, the state church said, this is how you live. And so the state was fused with the church and said, this is how things are going to go. No, let's say you were the kind of person that said, I read my Bible, I don't know, I think I'm supposed to live this way. Well, if you said, I'm going to live in a way that's different than what the state church said, you were going to come up against persecution. You were in, in a place where you might be burned at the stake for your faith. You might even be drowned. It was not going to go well for you. So our friend Dirk was an Anabaptist who lived during this period. What's an Anabaptist? An Anabaptist was and is someone who believes that you must first place your faith in Christ and then you are baptized by water. And that symbolizes the inner transformation that has happened in your life and you let everybody else know about that through your baptism. And so that's what he believed. And guess what? People wanted to kill him because of that belief at that time. Can you just imagine what that would be like? So one winter night, uh, in, in late winter, it's freezing outside and Dirk has been found out because of his beliefs. And he is running outside of the town, the home where he's lived, and the thief catcher is out to get him because he's going to capture Dirk, and he's going to take him, imprison him, and probably Dirk is going to die for his life. So Dirk runs outside of the town, and he runs across the lake that is frozen over. And as he runs over, the thief catcher comes right behind him. His enemy comes right behind him. And then Dirk crosses to the other side of the bank. And as he looks back, he sees that the thief catcher has fallen into the ice. Now imagine if you were Dirk in this moment. You have two options. You can either, one, let the thief catcher freeze and die to death. He's your, your enemy, by the way, and you would live, right? Or two, he could save the man's life, and he would risk his own in the process. And so in a beautiful display, Dirk takes one step back onto the ice. Then he takes another step back onto the ice, and he saves the very man who is his enemy, and is trying to capture him. And so if we could put that picture up on the screen, you'll see kind of that historic uh, picture of what we're talking about here. And so Dirk is taken captive because of his beliefs. And then he is tortured because of his beliefs. And then he is determined that he is going to be burned at the stake because of his beliefs. And so the story goes like this. This is what ends up happening next. On the day of his execution... He was ordered to be burned at the stake. A strong east wind blew the flames from his upper body so that death was long delayed. The same wind carried his voice to the next town where people heard him cry more than 70 times, Oh my Lord, oh my God. And finally the judge that was present 
He was filled with sorrow and with regret. And he wheeled his horse around and he said this, dispatch the man with a quick death. And so the man who could have saved his life gave it up for his enemy. And you and I are looking at this and going, why would someone so flippantly throw away their life? Why would they waste their life on their enemy? Or did they really? Did Dirk really throw away his life? Did he waste his soul? And so with that in mind, we're in Mark 8, 34 to 38, and we're looking at a passage here that is incredible because it is a climactic moment where Jesus has been doing all of these miracles up until this point. He has been telling the weather what to do. He has been feeding 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. And people are looking at all these crazy things that Jesus is doing, and they're saying, who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? And then Peter finally steps up to the plate, and he says, you are the Messiah. You are the king. And he kind of gets it right. He says, you are the king, but he's thinking of somebody totally different than what Jesus actually came to be. He's thinking of a politician, but Jesus came to be a suffering king because he came to conquer sin and death, something that Peter didn't even think was on the table. And so Jesus says, listen up. This is what I'm about to go do. I'm about to go die for the sin of all people, and I'm going to go down to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die on a cross. To which Peter says, no, Lord, your plan is not best. Maybe you've said that. I know I've said that before. Because Peter could only see one step in front, and Jesus says, no, you get behind me, Satan, because Jesus will not be deterred from his mission because he knows things that you and I don't know and he knows things that Peter did not know and he has a huge, incredible purpose and he will not be deterred from accomplishing that incredible plan so that you and I can have salvation. And so in verse 34, Jesus says, listen up, this is what's going to happen to me. This is what's going to happen to you if you follow after me. Verse 34 says this, Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, Jesus said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. For if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? And then Jesus says, If anyone is ashamed of me, And my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let me reread one more time verse 34, that first statement right there. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own selfish ways and take up your cross and follow me. So do you want to follow Jesus? Do you want to follow after him? Jesus says to Peter in the first century, and he says to us in the 21st century, if you want to follow me, you must give up your life. This is the cost of discipleship. This is the cost of following Jesus. That first thing he says there, turn from your selfish ways. Maybe maybe your version might might say, uh, you must deny yourself. And that old man, right, that cares about the desires of the flesh, that cares about me, self-preservation, Jesus says, you put that to death. And by the way, we are not talking about just giving up chocolate for Lent, by the way. We are talking about a complete change, radical change of identity to following and pursuing after Jesus. And then he says that statement, take up your cross. Maybe you've known someone who uh, has back pain, or maybe they have a bad circumstance that they've been placed in, or some, something not good is happening to them. You walk up to them, they walk up to you, and they're hurting a little bit, and they say, you say, how's it going? They go, ah, oh, my back hurts a little bit, or I'm in a bad circumstance. It's just my cross to bear. 
In our culture, we use this phrase so often, um, and it's kind of become benign, right? It's become just tame. It's my cross to bear. But ignoring for just a moment that Jesus is talking about a literal taking up of his cross, that he's literally going to die. When you and I talk about this taking up of our cross, we talk about something that's happened to us, a situation we didn't want to be put in, a health situation we didn't want to be put in. But when Jesus is talking about taking up his cross, he is talking about something that he willingly chooses to do. Nobody forced it upon our Lord. He chose to take up his cross because he knew the end result was that so you and I could have life. This is who our Lord is, and it's an incredible thing. And so when he talks about cross, what do we mean by cross here? Well, if you were in the first century and and you heard someone say cross, you would immediately think of this. You would think of the Romans, right? The Romans who were in charge uh, of of all of Israel and all of the Western world. They would show up to a town, and you know what they would do? They'd show up to a town that maybe there was an uprising, something was going wrong, and they would show up, and they would take all of the enemies out, and they would pin them up on crosses where they would be tortured for days on end and would die a very painful death of asphyxiation. And so when you would walk out of that town or you would walk in, you would realize that the message that Rome was sending was this, you don't mess with Rome. And so the cross symbolized death, suffering, and shame. And so when your wife comes out on a Sunday morning and she's gotten herself all ready and she's wearing that necklace that has, well, imagine this. Imagine she's wearing a necklace and it has a beautiful gold electric chair right there, right there at the bottom. And she says to you, honey, how do I look? And you say, I think you might have a problem, right? You would look at that and be just shocked, right? The idea that someone would have something so scandalous and just like that. So we prop up our crosses like it's no big deal as a symbol of hope. But in the first century, somebody would look at that and say, that's a symbol of shame. That's what's going on here. So Jesus says, take up your cross and follow after me. And let me say this. There's nothing here in this passage that suggests that Jesus is being symbolic by taking up your cross. He's being very literal. He's saying you must be willing to lay down your life if you want to follow after me. He's talking about being willing to die. And so when you and I hear that statement from Jesus and our flesh screams out, no, or maybe it screams out, you know what, that's a cute thing that they did, radical thing in the first century, but now we're more civilized and we don't have to have those kind of conversations anymore. I just want to say this. Thank goodness that Jesus didn't have that same mindset of self-preservation so that you and I could have life. Thank goodness Jesus didn't have that same kind of preservation mindset so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins. And thank goodness that Jesus didn't have that same mindset that you and I have so often because it is he that goes up upon that cross. As we follow up after him, he goes up on the cross and we don't have to. He goes up on that cross, and he doesn't just stay dead on that cross. He goes up onto it and through it so he, he could go from death to resurrection life, and you and I are just the observers. And so if I could say it like this, Philippians 2 put it, puts it this way. Have the same mindset that is, that is in you, that is in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He who came from on high got low, and he did it for you, and he did it for me. That's not the end of the story, right? Because, because this... 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has given him the name that is above every single name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus, Israel's Messiah, is the Lord. That's what we're talking about here. This is who our Lord is. And you and I just watch. You and I are just the observers, and we take the benefit of knowing that we can have life. When God calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Why? So that you and I can have life. This is the cost of discipleship. This is what following Jesus is all about. And so if your flesh is still screaming out, no, Jesus says, listen up. I'm going to tell you why you should be willing to throw away your whole life for my sake. Verse 35. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. The first reason Jesus says you should be willing to throw away your life for my sake is that you will really find your real life, your true soul. You will not lose your soul. I remember about four months ago when I was looking at this passage and I was reading through it and pondering over it, I was invited to teach on these same words of Jesus that he gives here at a local church out in Fort Worth, Texas. And I was looking at my Bible and I was reading it as I was going on. Uh, I, was, I was walking on the campus where I went to seminary at the time. And I was looking at it, and I went, oh my gosh, this is so radical what Jesus is calling to you. That I must be willing to throw away my whole life to follow him. What a high cost. As I look around, and I could see the beautiful architecture of the buildings that were around me. I could see the, 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 the beautiful plants and, and everything that was there. They had a beautiful prayer garden. They even had, if you graduated, you got your name on a brick, and they put it right there on the sidewalk. So you could walk by it and go, mm-hmm, I did that right there. And so you could feel really good about yourself if you were a seminary grad. But I'll tell you this. As I was there and I was reading, and I was, as I was reading this passage, and I was thinking about how much I liked my life and things were comfortable. My beautiful wife, Justine, who is here this morning, she had her dream job as a second grade teacher. And we go, God, we don't want to go anywhere. We like our life right here. Thank you very much. But I'll tell you this. The Holy Spirit did a work on my heart so that by the end of that night, he reminded me once again, that there is nothing in life that is more precious than knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And there's nothing more valuable than to know him. And so listen to me. You can have more degrees than a thermometer, and you can have PhD after your name. But PhD at the end of your name is just, if you do not have Christ. I count everything as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's what the Apostle Paul has to say. And so listen. After that, realizing I could give up my life and go, you know, Lord, it's, it's yours. I abandoned everything for you. I could go anywhere. And so he could say, you're going to Fresno. I said, yes, Lord, amen. And so I'm willing to forfeit good Texas barbecue to deal with a California tri-tip, right? Um, someone might say that's my cross to bear, right? Um, and a quick asterisk, uh, Pastor Ken and Anna give they make an incredible tri-tip. You should have it sometime and uh, ignore what I just said right there. They're, they're very good at, at what they do as far as, as cooking. We lived with them the, this uh, past, a couple summers ago, and uh, they were absolutely incredible. But let me tell you this in all seriousness. You must be willing to abandon your whole life to follow after Jesus. Other words, otherwise, Jesus says, you are not worthy of following after me. This is what he's talking about here. And so when you and I hear these things, I know when I talk to college students, I'm, I'm, I'm the young adult pastor here, by the way, um, and I'm talking to college-age students, and I'm asking them questions about their life. I can see that there's a radical idealism. Lord, I'll go anywhere for you, but I can't help but wonder if maybe for some of us, 
that radical desire to follow after Jesus has kind of cooled down a little bit because of the cares of life. Let me give us just some first steps, once again, to deny that old self, to take up our cross, and follow him. Pastor Ken just said a moment ago, let's not forget what was just said. We have done an incredible work by way of the Holy Spirit to make funding for Sunnyside at our new building possible. But the work is not done. If you want to see whether or not you follow Jesus, I'd encourage you just to look at your pocketbook. And you will find where your commitments truly lie. Deny the self and give. And by doing it, you will find that it is costly, but it will bring Christ glory. Second, block parties. We just mentioned that a few minutes ago. Block parties, we have one here on August 1st at John Wash Elementary. And we have another one um, at, at our new facility on August 15th. Let me tell you this. Serving Jesus through a block party is costly. It takes your time, but it will bring him glory. Third, helping out with kids on a Sunday morning. Yes, it will be costly of your time, but you better believe it gives Christ glory because you are preparing the future of the church. Fourth, we call it the extraction force. How did this get here? It didn't just pop up, right? And where does it go after, after we leave in a, in a few minutes? Someone has to do the hard work of bringing it, all, bringing it all here and taking it all back. Would you consider being a part of our extraction force here at Sunnyside and working? It will be costly, but it will bring Christ glory. And then lastly, serving on August 11th, uh, we're going to help out, and we're going to go do landscaping work, and we're going to work on that new building, and we're going to make it look amazing. And that process continuously of, of working on the new building that Christ has given us. It will be costly to give up your time and effort, but it will bring Christ glory. And Christ, by the way, has given so much for us. What we are called to do is really so small in comparison. And so if you want to follow Jesus, you must be willing to give up your life. Why? Because you will find that you will really hold on to your soul. But let's flip it around. Secondly, Jesus says this in verse 36 and 37. And moving along quickly here. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? The answer is no. No profit, nothing, no fame, no financial gain, no approval, comfort, or safety will be able to make us satisfied in the end. If God is our maker, he's designed us. Doesn't he know what we need? He knows what we need is ultimately him. When we give ourselves to him, you can gain the whole world but lose your own soul. Why would you want to throw away your soul, Jesus says. I remember being in high school, and I remember having a consumeristic mindset on church. I just showed up. I was a good religious person, for the most part. But as I was in school, I remember not being happy because I did not have Christ in my life. I was going to other places to find satisfaction, and it just was not doing the job. And I'll tell you this. As I work with young adults, by the way, young adults meet 8 o'clock this next Thursday. If you're interested, talk to me about that. We have an incredible ministry of what God's doing over there. I'll tell you this. When I sit down with these guys on a Thursday night, I always ask the question, what's your major? Many of us ask that question to college students. What's your major? And the reason I ask that question is not just to know what their major is. I want to know what is the thing that they find to be most satisfying because typically a college student will go, I have to do this right now in order so I can get it later. And I always want to know, what is it? And I remember being in this critical crossroads myself, being in college, and I remember thinking, Lord, what are you calling me to do? And I listened to this guy named Ben Stewart, who is the minister at Breakaway Ministries at Texas A&M. 
and he talked about the chief end of man, the whole point of why we exist is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And he says this, the problem is that so many people climb that corporate ladder or whatever ladder it is really for you, and you get to the top and you realize nothing is there. Or to put it this way, the problem is that so many people climb that ladder, but the problem is that they have put their ladder against the wrong wall. That is a wasted And Jesus says, I don't want that for you. I don't want that for you. He says, you will either waste your life by pursuing after me, and you'll really gain it, or you will truly waste your life for all eternity if you do not have me. Jesus does not allow us to remain indifferent about him. And then finally, Jesus speaks to us in verse 38. But before I say anything else, before I read this passage, let's let Jesus be Jesus. So often, I would encourage you this, to do this. If you ever read your Bible, which you should, um, and you're reading through the Gospels, those four, first four biographies about Jesus, if you want to know what Jesus is really like, read the red letters of, uh, of what he says, and you will see that he is much more different than what we actually think he is, because we like to paint him in our own image, in our culture. And so, so often in our culture, we like to think of Jesus as that long-haired hippie that really likes to recycle and cares about the environment. Let's let Jesus actually be Jesus here and let him say what he means to say in verse 38. He says this, If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. At the end of the day, each one of us will stand before God and we will either have to say, Lord, I was ashamed of you, or Lord, I honored you and I acknowledged you before men. What will you do? And I say this, by the way, as someone who worked part t- so many different part-time jobs in the la- these last four years, and I found that it was so easy to communicate, hey, go tell people about Jesus. But when you're actually in the workplace and you have to deal with that kind of, I don't know, that kind of concern, am I going to be labeled the goody-goody Christian? Am I going to be labeled as that guy? Jesus says, yes, you ought to, because it will be for my glory, even if you are portrayed as the radical, which, by the way, we just call that normal Christianity uh, in the church. Being radical is just normal. The way we proclaim the gospel and the way we live our lives, Jesus says, will you acknowledge me before men by the way that you do this? And so as the worship team comes back up, I want to say just a few concluding words here. Do you call yourself a Christian? Do you take that name, Christ follower? What a day to follow Jesus. What a day to put aside that old flesh once again and take that first step. And I want to encourage us to do this. Right here at the front, in just a few minutes, we're going to give an opportunity that you come forward and you dedicate yourself to Jesus and say, Lord, I want to serve your church afresh one more time, and let me do it this way. We just mentioned block parties, by, by serving in kids' church, by helping out in these various ways of the giving of our time and resources. You come forward and you deny the self. It will be costly, but it will be for Christ's glory. God's heart is on his church, and he cares about us. So you come forward, and let's say you might not even know what you're supposed to do. You come forward, and you let Jesus give you the answer. Because he's a good, good God, and he cares about us, and he is going to tell us what he wants to do with our lives. And then last, if you're someone in here, and maybe you say, I'm just here. I'm just a seeker. You haven't yet given your soul over to Jesus. Let me ask you a question. What is the worth of your soul? If Jesus has made you, doesn't he know what's best for you is ultimately him? He loves you. He loves his church, and so let's follow him.